You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. I've been gathering the greatest hunters across all realities, and I started with the best. Cost a lot of credits to convince Mando, but this is the way. The plan? Pure chaos. And no one will sow it better than them. Fortnite is an online video game where players collaborate to survive in an open-world environment. And the winner is really Epic Games, which makes billions of dollars every year from it. And this week, Epic won its years-long real-world battle with Google over its app store, where it charges companies fees when users make purchases for games like Fortnite. In a major blow to the tech giant, a San Francisco jury found that Google's App Store constitutes an illegal monopoly in violation of the antitrust laws. Google is vowing to appeal. Joining me is antitrust expert Harry First, a professor at NYU Law School. What did the jury decide exactly here? So the jury decided basically that in a number of different ways, Google abused its power to keep its monopoly in the Google app stores or the distribution of Google apps. And that they did it in a number of different ways, agreements with the handset makers, agreements with developers, you know, making sure that Google Play appears on every Android phone, keeping developers from going off and developing their own app stores, and basically requiring everyone to sort of go through this funnel, you know, it's sort of like the old hourglasses, you know, it goes down into the middle, and everything goes through Google Play if you want to reach someone with an Android phone in their hand. So those little grains of sand, 30% of them go into Google's pocket. Yes, those are the commissions as high as 30% that Google takes from software developers. The jury deliberated for a little over three hours after a month-long trial and came back with a unanimous verdict. Was the evidence against Google that strong? Jurors take these cases very seriously. Jurors pay attention. They sit there and they listen hard. This is new to them in a sense. I mean, maybe some of them have played video games on their phones, but they listen hard. And I took a look at the sheet with their findings. And it said, you're supposed to define what the market is. And instead of the sheet having a list of things with a checkbox, you know, what it Mm -hmm. might be, it just had a box and you had to write it in. So they wrote in the exact right 
product market definition that the plaintiffs wanted. And to me, it's sort of a little tell that they're paying attention. I mean, this is a little bit technical language, and they were paying attention to what was going on. There were atmospherics in the case. Of course, there always are, you know, testimony of how apparently Google made an offer to Epic to come back on board. We'll give you a lot of money. There was some question about how Google was dealing with its internal chats and whether they were trying to, you know, erase the evidence as they were making mm-hmm. it. So those may have played a role, but I think that's a real indication of non-technical experts saying, okay, we understand what power is, you know, what a monopoly is. We're not economists, but we can understand this evidence. And Google's it. Epic, which seems to be on a mission, lost a similar challenge to Apple's App Store two years ago. And both companies have asked the Supreme Court to review that. Does the judge's verdict there contradict the jury's verdict here, or are the cases and the facts different? Um, Yes, maybe, or maybe yes. (laughs) (laughs) You're doing it um, again, Harry. You got me one of those. (laughs) I mean, this certainly is going to be one of Google's arguments when Google appeals this case to the Court of Appeals in the Ninth Circuit, saying, you know, you just affirmed this decision, finding a very different statement of what the product market is, finding that Apple and Google compete in the distribution of gaming apps, and you were right in the Apple case, and this case can't stand. The jury made an error of law, you know, reflected, no doubt, the instructions that it was given, and the verdict can't stand. So I think that's going to be a key part. Now, what did I say? Maybe, yes, yes, maybe. Um, I forget. (laughs) Epic is still arguing, of course, that the judge was wrong in the Apple case. But putting that to the side, we'll argue there's differences between what Google's doing and what Apple's doing. And the product market definition is different because other companies actually do distribute Android-compatible applications. So it's not a product market definition constructed for one seller, as it seemed for Apple, since no one else can distribute applications that will work with the Apple operating system, because Apple controls that. But Google doesn't quite control Android in the same way, although there are probably arguments over that. So they'll try to distinguish the facts of the case a little bit. But at heart, it seems like a problem. The case isn't over because the judge has to decide what the remedy will be yet. Epic didn't seek monetary damages from Google, only a change in App Store policies. I mean, what's the range that the judge can order here? Well, you're being more specific about what Epic's seeking than Epic was (laughs) in its complaint. The remedy was stated very generally about adjunctive relief. So it's not 100% clear what Epic wants, except to say that apparently whatever Match was offered, Match.com was offered and agreed to in its settlement, presumably Google would have been glad for Epic to take the same settlement. It didn't. So presumably it wants more than just that. Now, I'm not 100% clear about exactly what it wants, except it certainly wants to be able to free itself from the Google payment system. It wants to be able to sell things in Fortnite through its own 
Fortnite app and not have to pay a commission to Google. But exactly how they want to achieve that, technically, they don't seem to want to have some sort of a choice thing that's within Google's control. So it's not 100% clear. But I would say this, Epic did not invest so much money in this litigation without thinking that it could get something worth more. So whatever it wants, they must think it will be worth a lot of money to them going forward because Fortnite's a big business. Some analysts have been saying that the business model in apps that generates for Google and Apple close to $200 billion a year is in jeopardy. Tim Sweeney, the chief executive officer of Epic, said, the dominoes are going to start falling here. The end of 30% is in sight. Do you think it's as big as all that? Well, maybe. I mean, certainly Epic wants to argue that your business is about to end. You know, this may just be a dance towards a settlement, hard to say. But, you know, whatever it is, Apple and Google have already moderated some of their pricing for smaller developers. But the big money appears to be, particularly with the games, which offer subscriptions and things that can be bought within the app itself. And there's a lot of money in that. So no doubt that 30% isn't going to stick. But what it's going to be and who's going to control the payment, I don't know. And part of the question is, is this a settlement that's only sort of a one-off for them? Or is it going to help other developers? And I guess that's yet to be seen. Google is defending two other antitrust cases by the Justice Department, one in D.C. over its search engine and another in Virginia over its ad tech business. And the Justice Department has been investigating Apple's App Store practices since around 2019. So is it like an antitrust revolution against big tech, looking at it from the viewpoint of a professor of antitrust? Well, from professor of antitrust, I think, gee, what took everyone so long to catch <laughs> up? You know, if you think about using antitrust against major economic powerhouses, and particularly in the tech space, it took two decades between Microsoft and filing cases against the major tech platforms. So in that sense, it's a revolution not taking place in the streets. It's taking place in courtrooms. So it's pretty amazing in that sense. And the ad tech case against Google, that will also be tried before a jury because the Justice Department is asking for money damages because the federal government is an advertiser. So it's a way both to get money back for taxpayers, but also a way to have a case tried before a jury instead of a judge. And this may be a little cautionary tale for Google about that case. Sort of a test of whether a jury makes a difference rather than a judge. Thanks so much, Harry. That's Professor Harry First of NYU Law School. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Look, I screwed up. Like, I was CEO. I had a responsibility here. I had a responsibility to be 
on top of what was going on on the exchange. I wish I had done much better at that. Sam Bankman-Fried accepted responsibility for FTX's collapse in his so-called apology tour after its bankruptcy in November of 2022. But fast forward to a year later when he took the stand at his fraud trial, and it was a completely different story. Bankman-Fried danced around the questions and appeared vague and evasive in a painstaking cross-examination, so much so that his own lawyer says he was the worst witness he's ever seen. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Ava Benny Morrison, who spoke to attorney David Mills, the behind-the-scenes architect of Bankman-Fried's defense at trial. Ava, tell us about David Mills. Who is he? So David Mills is a Stanford Law professor, a longtime white-collar lawyer who is also best friends with Sam Bateman Freed's parents, Barbara and Joe. They're also Stanford Law professors. And he came into SBF's case to be the legal strategist. So he was sort of directing the approach that trial attorneys should take, suggesting different strategies in terms of dealing with the charges, the defense, the kind of case that they would make at the trial. Law isn't his only career. He has quite an expansive resume. That's right. He's a very interesting guy. On top of being an attorney, he's also a managing director at Fortress. He's also a general counsel at a quite reputable Silicon Valley design firm run by the very well-known former chief designer at Apple, Johnny Ive. He's also been an advisor to the VC firm Benchmark when it was trying to out the Uber CEO, Travis Kalanick, a few years ago. So he has his fingers in a lot of different pies, but he is relatively unknown. Most people outside of the industry don't really know who he is. People that I spoke to for this story said he's very humble. He likes to keep his head down and just do the work. He doesn't really seek the limelight at all. And he's done very well, although he won't talk about just how well. He donated at least $10 million to Stanford Law School, millions more to the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. And when SBF was jailed in the Bahamas, he flew there on his own private jet. But he's also been involved in a lot of pro bono efforts for criminal defendants. And when you interviewed him, he had a cap on with the number 3419, representing the number of people he's helped to get out of prison. This is something he's probably most proud of. He was a major financial backer and driver of the effort to overturn California's three strikes law. That was a law that put people in prison for life on their third conviction, no matter how big or small that third conviction was. So he worked with students at Stanford Law in 2012 to change that law, which ended up getting thousands of people released from prison. He told you that he realized right away that... It would be an uphill battle defending Bankman Freed because lawyers turned him down. He'd had a bit of an idea about FTX from Joe, Sam Bankman Freed's father. They had some informal conversations about how the crypto exchange was going, uh, Joe thinking about going over and working for FTX full time. But when there was a run on the bank at FTX, in November 2022, I called David essentially for advice and David's response was to send me the lawyer right away. So David started calling around different firms looking for someone to try and represent Sam Bankman fried But he said a lot of people didn't want to touch the case. He described Sam as the most hated person in America behind Donald Trump. He finally settled on two trial attorneys in New York, Mark Cohen and Christian Everdell, who ended up taking the case right through trial. He doesn't believe the trial was fair. Tell us why. 
he said he believes that Sam is innocent because he didn't form the intent to do anything wrong, which is obviously a key element of proving fraud. He said that the pre-trial motions, so the orders that the judge handed down before the trial even got started, really put the defence at a disadvantage. They weren't allowed to call a number of expert witnesses. They couldn't really rely on the defence that Sam was acting on the advice of lawyers and doing a lot of the things that the prosecution said was wrong. He said from that point on, he realised the case was essentially unwinnable. And you and I have discussed Sam Beckman-Fried's decision to take the witness stand. He said that after the prosecution's case... SBF really had no choice but to testify. He said after those pre-trial motions and hearing the damning testimony from some of Sam Beckman-Fried's former friends and fellow executives that Sam really had no other choice but to testify himself. Mill said it was his idea and his strategy for Sam to get up there and say, yes, I did everything that you said I did. And I made all of these statements that, yes, they were conflicting after FTX filed for bankruptcy last year, but I was doing my best to look after customers and I was trying to save their money. But he didn't do that. He seemed to be okay and coherent and clear on direct examination, but when he was under cross-examination, he came across as a little bit evasive. He was quibbling with the prosecutor's questioning. It seemed like he you know, wouldn't answer sort of simple questions about whether he said something or he didn't. And Mills was pretty candid in his assessment of Sam under cross-examination, saying he was probably the worst witness he's ever seen under cross. I assume they prepped him, but did he talk about how they prepped him at all? I asked that question. I said, well, isn't that your job uh, to (laughs) prep Sam ahead of his trial for this very situation? He said that while there was a lot of preparation done for his direct examination, it was really difficult to prepare him adequately. Because he was in prison, his bail was revoked just before trial. There were a lot of issues around his lawyers getting proper access to him. And Mill also said that if he had all of the resources and money in the world, he would have hired a different lawyer who wasn't involved in the case to go through a mock cross-examination with Sam, but they didn't do that. So he put it down to the lack of access to Sam in prison and the lack of money, essentially. He told you that SBF went off script when he took the stand. What did he mean by that? Mill said that it was his strategy and he wanted Sam to get up there and admit to everything that the prosecution and the witnesses said that he did. They wanted him to just admit to all of the public statements, the tweets and the media interviews and all of those different things that were on the public record in the context of, yes, I said these things, but I was trying my best in really difficult circumstances to do the best for customers. But he didn't do that. Instead, Sam got up there and said time and time again, he couldn't recall things that the prosecution said that he had said, that he couldn't recall certain conversations with witnesses. So there was a disconnect there between what Mills wanted him to do and what his strategy was and what Sam did. But Mills thinks that even if Bankman-Fried had performed better on the stand, the jury still would have found him guilty. Yes, Mills said that he thought a guilty verdict was inevitable, but the trial wasn't fair. This circles back to Mills referring to the pretrial motions that essentially whittled down the defence case to a case that was very thin. He also thought that the testimony from Sam Bankman-Fried's former friends Gary Wong, Caroline Ellison and Nishad Singh were pretty powerful and it was difficult to go up against those. This really struck me. He said 
I'm not going to get myself emotionally involved on a very deep personal level in a case like this again. And he's rethinking taking criminal law cases. Exactly. He seems like someone who just throws absolutely everything into a case once he signs onto it. You know, he told us he often talks to his wife to almost get her permission and her support to take on a client because he just gives his entire life to it. So that's what he did in this case. And I think it had the added complexity of a friendship there. And he found the whole experience very demanding, very exhausting. And he just doesn't want to do another criminal law case like it again. So he's not going to be involved in the appeal then? That's what he said. He doesn't want to be involved in the appeal. Uh, He feels like he's done his bit and he's ready to just take it down a few notches and spend a bit more time with his family. Did the trial cause a breach in his friendship with Sam Bankman-Fried's parents? Yes. Mill thinks that this case and the verdict against Sam Bankman-Fried has certainly had an impact on his friendship with Barbara and Joe. Mill said that he took on this case out of a favour to Sam Bankman-Fried's parents as well as an interest in being involved in a really novel and high-profile case. Mill said that He was concerned that parents who think that their child hasn't done anything wrong will look for someone to blame and that he was in their line of sight. He also said that he didn't think their friendship would recover. We actually went to Barbara and Joe and asked them what they thought of Mills and his comments. They responded and said, we love David Mills and we're eternally grateful for everything that he has done for us. There are often fallouts from trials that the public doesn't see. Fascinating interview. Thank you so much, Ava. That's Bloomberg legal reporter Ava Benny Morrison. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Adherence to the rule of law is a bedrock principle of the Department of Justice. And our nation's commitment to the rule of law sets an example for the world. We have one set of laws in this country, and they apply to everyone. In announcing one of the two federal criminal cases against Donald Trump, special counsel Jack Smith said that no one is above the law. It applies equally to everyone. However, the former president is claiming the law doesn't apply to him. Trump says he's entitled to absolute presidential immunity against criminal charges over his efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. The trial judge rejected Trump's claims of immunity, refusing to toss out the charges, and Trump has appealed to the D.C. appellate court. But in an effort to prevent delays in the case, the special counsel is trying to leapfrog the appellate court by asking the Supreme Court to step in to decide the issue. Joining me is Derek Muller, a professor at Notre Dame Law School. Derek, tell us about this untested claim of absolute presidential immunity against criminal charges that Trump is making think about, you know, immunity from your actions as president. That is, you are engaged in your official capacity, you are engaged in executive functions, 
and the notion that you can be criminally prosecuted for that behavior, for the things that you're doing while you're conducting your job, you should be exempt from criminal prosecution as a result. And again, a lot of this turns on, well, at what point does your behavior sort of flip from official executive behavior to unofficial behavior, political or individual behavior? You know, is there an immunity for crimes committed if you're purporting to do them in your official capacity? How could that possibly be the case? And so on. The special counsel is asking the Supreme Court to step in using certiorari before judgment, which is essentially skipping the appellate court. It's unusual, but how unusual is it for the court to grant that kind of review? Pretty unusual. I mean, so I think you can think about this as some layers. If you're asking the Supreme Court to have a petition for certiorari before judgment, you know, sometimes that might arise if there's just a sort of preliminary injunction or preliminary posture of the case where maybe you want the court to step in. And so that, that happens. It's not common, but it's not uncommon. It, it's a relatively infrequent occurrence for the court to step in. But to sort of ask them to skip the Court of Appeals and go straight to the United States Supreme Court to resolve this matter before the D.C. Circuit has weighed in is more unusual. Now, on the one hand, you could say, well, I think this is a matter of presidential executive power. This happened in some of the cases involving Richard Nixon, if we're dealing with executive power and criminal investigations and so on. And these are major issues that we expect the Supreme Court is going to have to weigh in on at some point. So there's this notion up front that they'll weigh in. And so maybe we should just skip that step and get the United States Supreme Court involved. It's extraordinary true, but these are extraordinary circumstances. On the other hand, you have to think from the justices' perspective about their willingness to sort of step in here and say, well, can we just let the process play out? Maybe if the D.C. Circuit does a good job, we don't really have to weigh in. We can just kind of agree with what they've said and just, you know, passively let the case kind of continue below without us having to weigh in. So there's just some questions about what the court might do. But again, it's understandable why the prosecution wants to move this as quickly as possible. And the trial judge has paused the case pending this appeal, although she said she wasn't throwing out all the dates. I did want to ask you about the political overtones in the special counsel's request to the Supreme Court, because trials are delayed all the time. But if it's delayed in this case and he wins the presidency, then it'll never happen. I think the concern is if we have to go through a level of briefing and oral argument and waiting for an opinion at the D.C. Circuit and then wait for another round of appeals to the United States Supreme Court and do the same thing all over again, which we feel like is inevitable, that can really start to press upon that March 4th date. And so there is this effort to move things along as quickly as possible. And yeah, I think you're right that we have this concern, if you're the prosecutor, that if there's any delay, this thing gets pushed back and then there's all kinds of additional complexities. You know, what happens if he's the nominee for the party? You know, can we realistically expect him to be facing criminal charges or sitting in a courtroom while he's supposed to be campaigning for president? That that raises all kinds of unique and additional questions. So we want this to be resolved as early as possible. If he's guilty, something the voters ought to know. If it's not guilty, also something the voters want to know. So there is this effort to resolve as early as possible. But there's no question it has some political valence to it. There's some political charge because whenever you're dealing with the front-running candidate for a presidential nomination for a major political party, whatever you do in any direction is going to have some kind of political ramifications and definitely some risks that we're going to see play out about how we balance those things. You mentioned U.S. v. Nixon in 1974. In that case, I believe it was 61 days from start to finish. 
Yeah. So, I mean, we can move things quickly. I mean, there's no question that we can move things quickly in these processes. For the United States Supreme Court, I think about Bush v. Gore, where they granted cert on December 9th, oral argument December 11th, decision December 12th. I mean, that's record pace to move it in three days, right? At the special counsel's request, the D.C. appellate court has agreed to expedite its consideration of Trump's appeal, setting deadlines for briefs to be filed between December 23rd and January 2nd. How does that play in here? But even then, you then have to schedule oral argument. And while you have that as a firm date, you don't know how long it will take after oral argument to issue a decision. You can say that you'd like it as quickly as possible, and the D.C. Circuit can try. But, you know, it might take a couple of weeks even working under the fastest of circumstances. So just looking at the calendar, it's, it might not be teed up for Supreme Court review until mid to late January. And again, if you're looking at a March 4th trial date, that adds a tremendous amount of uncertainty and tremendous pressure on the Supreme Court to weigh in kind of on a truncated timeline. So again, it's the reason why you say it's an extraordinary request from Smith's team here to seek the Supreme Court review, but totally understandable when you're looking at the calendar and what it looks like and that this is a major barrier to getting to that judgment. And if Trump is immune, the case goes away. And if he's not, then you know, probably his strongest defense is gone and we're going to a jury trial. Normally, a respondent gets a month to file a brief opposing an appeal. But on Monday, the Supreme Court agreed to speed up the part of the process where it decides whether to take the case. It's only giving Trump until December 20th to respond to the special counsel's request. Does that indicate that the justices are aware of the seriousness of the case or that they're inclined to grant the special counsel's request? I mean, does it indicate anything at all? So I don't know if they're inclined to grant, but I think it certainly means they are not disinclined. (laughs) I mean, this is a small but important victory for Smith's team here, because if the court just says, no, we're just going to give you a month to respond, well, that pretty much settles it, right? It pretty much makes the decision for you. But by allowing expedited you know, response to the petition for writ of certiorari, it keeps all of the court's options open, right? Whether to grant and then have it on an expedited basis or to deny, send it back to the D.C. Circuit, allow it to proceed on the normal track. So this was sort of a necessary win for Smith's team, but it certainly, I don't think, suggests a whole lot about the merits, except that the court is kind of keeping its options open. The Supreme Court, of course, has a six to three conservative majority. But it has not been especially receptive to the cases that Trump has brought since he left the presidency. I mean, does a conservative majority lean toward no presidents above the law or does it lean in another direction? Whenever you're justice in the court, you realize that you are setting major precedents for presidential power, executive authority, immunities, not just for Donald Trump, but also for Joe Biden, whoever the next president is, right? So there is, I think, this institutional concern from the court. And it's a major question, right? Once we've established that precedent about when former presidents can be prosecuted, it's going to have a lot of sway in the future. So I think the court's view, regardless of whether you're a conservative or a more liberal justice, is going to be thinking about these issues from other kinds of home marks of executive power and what kinds of behavior or conduct in office immunize you from future prosecutions, where that immunity attaches and arises and where it doesn't. It would be a landmark decision. Thanks so much, Derek. That's Professor Derek Muller of Notre Dame Law School. I'm June Grosso, and this is Bloomberg. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Hey, everyone, it's Helen, and I'm here with my beautiful model, Lucy. And today we're creating an everyday makeup look using all clean at Sephora products. I'm Aisha. And I'm Melinda. And today we're going to be talking about five clean beauty brands you need to know. Hi, I'm Tanil, and today I'm going to share with you some of my top picks from my lipstick wardrobe, and they're all clean. Sephora is just one of the companies promoting clean beauty products. How much does that matter to consumers like climate-conscious Gen Zers and millennials? Well, the clean beauty market has grown from its roots in luxury and independent brands to take over shelves at mass-market retailers like Target. And it's forecast to expand to $15.3 billion by 2028. But just what is a clean beauty product? That's the question that's driving consumer-led class actions against Sephora and Target and raising the legal risk for companies trying to capitalize on the demand for clean beauty. Joining me is Sean Collins, an attorney at Stradling. He advises companies on consumer litigation. What is a clean beauty product? Are there any parameters the public can rely on? No, there aren't. And that's probably the most frustrating part about it. And this is not abnormal. I mean, the FTC and the regulatory bodies are always five to ten years behind where the marketplace is. But, you know, that is everybody's great frustration is that there is no legal definition for beauty. And so the FTC releases what they call guidelines. So you'll see if you Google it, FTC guidance on what it means to have a clean beauty product. And that guidance is not law. They are trying to create guardrails or boundaries that kind of give guidance to the skincare and beauty product lines out there in the world so that they at least have an idea of what is permissible and what's not permissible. But it's not very helpful because if you're a skincare or cosmetics company, you're just really kind of crossing your fingers and hoping that you don't do anything that will get the FTC's attention or maybe a state attorney general's attention. There are now consumer-led class action lawsuits. Tell us a little bit about the lawsuit against Sephora. The reality of the lawsuit against Sephora and the reason why you're seeing so many plaintiffs' attorneys go after them is it's like anything in life. Tall trees attract the most wind. Sephora is one of the most recognized beauty and skincare companies in the world. You know, you walk into any mall and even online, they have a huge e-commerce presence. And so plaintiff's attorneys are coming after them and saying, you know, this is what the FTC guidance says, and you didn't do that. Therefore, you're in violation of the law. Now, what is the law? The law is Section 5 of the FTC Act, which is very broad and vague. It says you cannot advertise a product in an unfair, deceptive, or misleading manner. And so the question becomes, well, what does that mean? The FTC views it as, well, if a consumer is looking at your label and they don't quite understand what you're saying to them on that label, that's unfair, deceptive, misleading. That's kind of the impetus for these lawsuits like the one you're seeing against Sephora. 
So what do you tell your clients about promoting clean beauty products? I tell my clients, if you're advertising here in California and you're going to use that word clean or all natural and you know that there might be an ingredient or more that could potentially not be classified as clean or all natural by the California Attorney General, you need to do one of two things. You either need to hedge with your language, meaning most people like to say 100% natural. I always tell them, well, if it's not 100% natural, you could say mostly natural, you know, something to that effect. And obviously, you know, the clients don't like that, especially the advertising department, because they're like, no, we want to use all natural. And I say, look, I'm not going to tell you that you can't use all natural, but if you don't put an asterisk next to it or soften that language a little bit, there is the potential that a plaintiff attorney could come after you. Well, as these cases proceed, we'll find out more about what courts consider to be clean beauty. Thanks so much, Sean. That's Sean Collins, a shareholder at Stradling. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.